Thanks, Corey, for leading us in worship. Today, we come to our next section in the book of Genesis, chapters 10 and 11, in our series entitled, Far From the Shallow. Let me begin with a disclaimer first. As you read this short little paragraph that sits in between two genealogies, you might think it means one thing, but potentially it could mean something else. I don't think anyone knows with 100% certainty as to what this is really getting at, but I'm going to give to you my best guess. Most ideologies and movements are built over a course of time. You might say they are built brick by brick. Now, most of the things that you believe in very deeply inside of you was not built in a day, but evolved over a course of time, evolved in the midst of a a bunch of life experiences. Likewise, a national identity or an international identity is built over time, brick by brick, until an edifice is built that is strong enough to intimidate other people. Well, in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we find that the nation of Israel, as she is about to come back into the land after the Babylonian captivity, is rebuilding her national identity brick by brick. Now, when we think of what we're encountering in the book of Genesis, we understand that it is a product of time and process and circumstances And all these oral traditions are combined. And in this primitive section, chapters 1 through 11, we see a bunch of stories that have been compiled for this purpose, to rebuild her national identity. These stories are important to the nation of Israel. And that's why these genealogies also occur. One of the things you're going to notice after the Noah account is that there is another genealogy. And right after this paragraph about the Tower of Babel, there's another genealogy. Now, before you shut off the TV and move on, because I'm talking about genealogies, hang with me for a second. So in Genesis chapter 10, if you were to wade through it for a few moments, you will know that It basically records the descendants of the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And two of the three are especially important here. We see the name Shem here, and Shem is where the word Semitic comes from. And today, the Semitic language or the Semitic race, a part of which the Jewish people are, is important to understand that Shem stands kind of at the height of the beginning of the forming of this nation. We find in the paragraph following the Tower of Babel, it will refocus on Shem again. But the other name in chapter 10 that is quite important is Ham, the son of Noah. And in the middle of chapter uh, 10, what we find in Genesis is that there is a descendant of Ham by the name of Nimrod. And this person plays an important part of what is coming when we come to the Tower of Babel. Let me read this for you. It is in chapter 10, verse 8 of the book of Genesis. 
It says, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. Now listen, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, and the first centers of his kingdom. Let me say that again. You need to perk up here. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Ikrik, Akkad, and Kalnei in Shinar. Shinar is this overall region that we call Babylonia. And from that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh. That should kind of turn on all the lights on your dashboard. That's where Jonah was sent to preach to the city of Nineveh. So here we find this man, Nimrod, is described as a mighty warrior. He's an individual that is significant because he is at the head of two international empires, Babylon and Assyria. Now, violence and dominion is this predominant theme in chapters 1 through 11. And I think that's part of what Israel is doing in rebuilding her national identity brick by brick what we find is that this concentration on violence in the ancient world is important, especially as we lead into next week when we talk about Abraham. Now, think about what we've already seen. We've seen Cain kill Abel. We see a descendant of Cain by the name of Lamech who continues the way of violence. We see God trying to wash clean this tendency of violence through the flood story, we now see, even after the flood, that mankind is still addicted to violence, and it is illustrated, it's personified in this person named Nimrod. Now, Nimrod is this individual that is the first emperor in Mesopotamia, and his name means to rebel. And the paragraph on the Tower of Babel is seen as a rebellion against God. So here is a man who is seen as an enemy against God, and the Tower of Babel represents a group of people that are seen as an enemy against God. Most important to notice is that part of the territory that he has conquered is Babylon and Assyria. And in the ancient mind of the Israelites, this cultural memory of the Israelites is that the military might of these two oppressive empires is where many of the Jewish people lived for many, many years. And so what we find taking place is in the account of chapter 10 of Genesis, it's often called the Table of Nations, what we find is that there is, in chapter 10, an accounting of all the descendants of Noah's sons. But it's repeated three times that they all had their own language. So I want you to think about this for a moment. I'm going to read three verses for you out of chapter 10, because then we have to ask the question, well, what's going on in chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel? So in chapter 10, verse 5, it tells us here, and it names a bunch of people, but listen to this. 
From these, the maritime people spread out into their own territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. Okay? Observation number one. Observation number two comes down in to verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. And one more time in verse 31, these are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territory and nations. So what gives here? What we find is that the biblical writer says, even before the Tower of Babel, there was a variety of languages already in existence. Unless this is chronologically out of place, and chapter 11 is supposed to come before chapter 10. But I don't think the writer is trying to confuse anyone here. He's trying to get our attention, and he's putting these stories together like this, not as an act of carelessness. What he is doing with a nine-verse interlude between the genealogies is he's talking about the existence of one common language. Well, what language is that? I think it is the language of the Babylonians. Now think about this for a moment. The Babylonians was an empire that conquered many different kinds of people. And when they brought these captives back to their land, they tried to educate them in the ways of the Babylonians, including their language. We see that in the book of Daniel. When Daniel and his three friends are brought to Babylon, they enter into this uh, process of being um, educated. And what we find is it, it related everything from food to religion to language as well. So it seems to me that the one language that is being referred to here is the Babylonian language, and this is the story that begins with Nimrod, and it is built by, brick by brick until the day that Babylon becomes this worldwide power. And in its international power, it has something to do with Israel's enemy, dominating them and trying to educate them and trying to bring all their culture into the ways of the Jewish people. So now we come to this section on the Tower of Babel. And if you have the liturgy that I sent out, you're going to notice a chart. This chart is basically my way of trying to understand the two differences in the ways that we can interpret these nine verses in chapter 11. So when you look at it, I put down along the left side some categories here, and here's what it would look like in the more traditional interpretation, and here's what it might look like in the more alternative interpretation. Again, I gave you that disclaimer at the beginning. This is my best shot to try to reconcile chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis. Because if this is a common language that is worldwide in chapter 11, then it doesn't agree with chapter 10. But let's try it. So I'm going to go down one side of the column and then the other. So we're told about this tower that is being built in chapter 11. Traditionally, this was often thought to be a temple that 
uh, people are trying to build a temple into the sky to meet the gods in the air. And that temple was often called a ziggurat. There were many of them that were built throughout the region of Babylon. What is the common speech? The common speech might be the language of creation. Now, we don't really know what language Adam spoke, Eve spoke, uh, Cain and Abel spoke. Um, was it some type of creation language, or was it a specific earthly language? We are not told, but whatever it is, that seems to be the common language in the traditional interpretation. The geography is the whole world, and verse 1 of chapter 11 says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. In other words, um, everybody spoke the same language. And this includes everyone all around the globe. I find it kind of interesting, a parenthesis here, uh, that the native people that live in our own land uh, migrated across Alaska and down into North America, and they are dated uh, to be here 10 to 15,000 years ago. So this would even predate uh, the recording of Genesis. So... Just hang on to that for a second. What is the contextual link? Well, it says, let us, that is, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly, and let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And then this phrase is interesting, not be scattered over the face of the earth. So what we might find happening here is a war against the Creator God and a refusal to carry out the creational mandate to be populous, to be fruitful, and to multiply. Well, what motivation is there? Well, is this a rebellion against the Creator God? We already said the name Nimrod means to rebel. And how is it settled? by urbanization into cities rather than spreading out? What is the judgment then? Well, in the traditional interpretation, God comes down and scatters people, and they disperse because they can't no longer understand each other, and they disperse to different corners of the world. And consequently, you have diverse language and cultures and ethnicities. So that's kind of how you would walk through a traditional interpretation of this. So let's think about it through a different lens. Maybe this is not a temple. Actually, the Hebrew word that is used for tower here is the word migdal. And migdal is a word that means a fortress, as in a military fortress. What is the common speech? Well, maybe the common speech is not a worldwide language. Maybe it's the common language of the Babylonian Empire. In other words, it is the lingua franca of, a, of its day. It's the trade language. It's how you get around in the empire. Maybe the geography is not the whole world, but the world of Babylon. Think about this for a moment. People that lived back in Babylon, did they know anything about the native people that lived in North America at the time? I doubt it. Did they understand that there were other people living in China and other places, maybe even Australia? 
Probably not. So the whole world in their mind is their empire, the Babylonian empire. So what is the contextual link then? Maybe this is a war against other people within their vicinity for their own power and glory. We see this here when it talks about, hey, let's make a name for ourselves and let's not be scattered over the face of the earth. Let this be an empire that is built that everyone will look at and bow down to. In fact, if you think about the story of Nebuchadnezzar, that's what he does. In the book of Daniel, he builds this huge statue, and when anyone heard the music play, they were to bow down in worship to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. So the motivation would be empire exaltation and the colonization of the captives of this empire. Daniel, his three friends are an example of that. But there's still an emotion of fear as well. And this fear might be this triangle of very powerful nations during that time. Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. They were all vying for control of this territory that we call Judah or Jerusalem. And so maybe the judgment that we see here when God comes down is that these people will fall, and we know this historically, they will fall to Medo-Persia, and we are also told in the book of Daniel, when Belshazzar is having this great feast, that the handwriting on the wall, meaning, meaning, Tiko Yafarzan means, your days are numbered, your kingdom is coming to an end. Maybe they thought in the back of their mind that as powerful as they are, there are these other nations that could possibly invade them and take over. And that's what happens. And so, what is the scattering of the people? Let's go on here. It says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So think about this for a moment. When the Medo-Persian Empire conquers Babylon, they don't speak the language of the Medo-Persian Empire. They also think of this as confusion in their own territory as well. The conqueror has been conquered. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. Again, don't think worldwide globe, think of territory. And they stopped the building. And this is why it is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Another important thing that is that you'll notice here is that when this tower is stopped, people scatter. I wonder, I'm just wondering aloud, if when Cyrus issues a decree to allow the Jewish people to go back to their homeland, you do see an exit out of Babylon and a movement back toward the homeland. So this is not a perfect chart. It's not a perfect interpretation. In fact, neither of them are. We struggle with this passage of Scripture because we really don't know for certain 
what it's trying to tell us. But I have some observations here, and that's at the bottom of your liturgy. Number one, at the time that ziggurats were constructed, this uh, temple, um, distinct ethnic groups had already used different languages for thousands of years, according to archaeologists. Number two, if God says that he stopped the building of this ziggurat, if that's what it is, then why are so many of them found by archaeologists? Maybe it is a fortress, and maybe it was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. Number three, for the separation of languages, of even basic language groups to have occurred in Babylon, major changes would need to be made to the archaeological record because archaeologists have found that there were different languages that date back a long time before this particular incident. And then finally, maybe some archaeologists suggest that this might be describing the city of Uruk, which developed both a complex temple and defense structure, and it was toppled by invaders as well. So I don't know what you want to do with that. Here's how I would apply it. Have you ever noticed that when you read the scriptures, that uh, bricks and horses don't get a good review. In other words, in the Bible, when you see the use of bricks and you see the presence of horses, there is always this buildup of military might. So when you read, look closely, when there's the mention of bricks, it's usually talking about empire building, and when it's talking about horses, most of the time it's talking about war waging. So brick technology is first mentioned here in the story of the Tower of Babel, a story representing the birth of an empire and its intrusion upon God's created order. In other words, God was not pleased with their empire building. And so this empire desire continues to persist down through the course of time, brick by brick. And by empire, I mean rich and powerful nations that will not stay within their allotted territory, but seek to expand their borders and enforce their way of life upon weaker nations. In other words, empires are often this malignant presence and has no regard for the common good. That's why all the way to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation chapter 17, there's still the use of this term Babylon. Well, Babylon's been gone for hundreds and thousands of years by the time you get to the book of Revelation, but it is a name that is used that talks about this tendency for mankind to use violence, to build up empires, and impose will upon other people. The other place where bricks are mentioned that's important to mention here this morning is the book of Exodus. Remember, when Pharaoh was ruling Egypt, it says in Exodus 1.13, Pharaoh ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with mortar and brick. In other words, they had to produce all kinds of bricks for the building of their cities, the building of their pyramids, whatever it may be, and the people 
are crying out to God for a deliverer because they are languishing under this oppressive regime. In other words, Pharaoh treated the brick-making Israelites as bricks. But that's the story of Exodus. In the interest of empire people, we find that they only use people. They don't honor people. They do not reflect upon people as being made in the image of God. And the dominant picture of salvation in the book of Exodus is deliverance out of that type of system. And of course, horse and rider drowned as they try to cross the Red Sea. In other words, horses represented superiority uh, to those who must fight on foot. But this is why the psalmist says, some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's Psalm 20, verse 7. And I think it's important, we talked about it on Palm Sunday, that when Jesus chose to ride into Jerusalem, he did not ride on a war horse like Pilate. He rode on a farm animal. So to summarize here, human civilization reaches its apex in the Babylonian, in the Assyrian, and the Egyptian empires during the time that the editors are putting Genesis together. What we find is a different type of kingdom that actually comes about. When Jesus stands before Pilate, he said this, if my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting, but my kingdom is not from this world. Why? Because the kingdom of God is without coercion. So if we must fight for it to build it, well, maybe then it's not God involved in it. It's easy to use the name of God for your own purposes, for your own empire building. Maybe that's why Abraham, we'll see next week in chapter 11, is an individual that leaves Ur of the Chaldees, which is another way of describing Babylon. He leaves it, and he's looking for a better land. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 10, it says Abraham was looking for a city whose builder is God. Fascinating, all these little connections. So the kingdom of God is built not by coercion and fighting and violence. It's built by faith. It is built by love. It's built on service. And that's why Jesus will give the Beatitudes. He will say, it's the place where the poor are blessed. It's the place where the brokenhearted are comforted. It's the place where the meek get their share. It's the place where the hungry for justice finally are satisfied. It's the place where mercy triumphs over ju judgment. It's the place where the pure-hearted see what the cynical will never see. It's a place where the children of God are making peace, undoing the works of the devil. And it's where the children of God are being persecuted, but by those who just don't see a better way of doing life. It's where... The Jesus way is replacing the way of empire building and war making. So I want to summarize like this as we close this morning. The story of the Tower of Babel is a fitting conclusion to this section of primeval history, a history that subverts and deconstructs the human desire for power and dominion over other people. In other words, God starts a new work from a man we will be introduced to next week, his name is Abram, 
and he will become a father of many nations, and his name is changed to Abraham. So this place called Babel is where the Babylonian language meets the gate of God, and what we find is that it eventually falls, and God is out to dismantle this way of life brick by brick, and this way of life of abusing power, oppressing citizens, obsession with unbridled military violence. This has no permanent story according to God. The author intends the text to be a typical story of mankind. This is a reflection of a specific event. But there's this wonderful portrait. When Corey read the scripture for us earlier, he also read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Think about this for a moment. So there's a common language of the Babylonian language that is being forced upon those that have been taken captive. But on Pentecost Sunday, God is going to come down using his spirit, and he recognizes the diverse, complex, and multicultural uh, existence of mankind. And he honors that. He so honors that that he sends his Holy Spirit so that the apostles on the day of Pentecost are able to speak the good news in the languages of the other people, in their own language. Mankind wants conformity, not diversity. And yet, at the same time, on Pentecost Sunday, God is sending his Spirit not to colonize people to become like us, but to unify us in our diversity through love and care and compassion. Another thing that I put into your liturgy this morning is this. It is a quote from Thomas Merton. He says that the beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we love only the reflection of ourselves we find in them. The beginning of love is to let those that we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them in to fit into our own image. Otherwise, we love only the, the reflection of ourselves we find in them. We see clearly throughout the Bible that exploitation, oppression, materialism, militarization, self-indulgence are all attitudes and practices that are condemned by God. But a life that moves out away from self by the power of the Holy Spirit can become a beneficial presence in the world, and that's what we are called to. And I'd like to close with a prayer that is written by uh, Professor Walter Brueggemann. This comes from his book, From Awed to Heaven, Rooted in Earth, A Prayer for Pentecost. Now, just another reminder, Pentecost is about the reversal of Babel. And for the writer of Acts, the coming of Jesus and the continuation of his presence in the power of the Holy Spirit inaugurates a whole new age in which the fragmentation of humanity is overcome. So here's the prayer from Walter Brueggemann. We name you wind, power, force, and then, imaginatively, third person. We name you, and you blow. You blow hard. You blow cold. You blow hot. You blow strong. You blow gentle. You blow new. Blowing the world out of nothing to abundance. Blowing the church out of despair to new life. 
blowing little David from shepherd boy to Messiah, blowing to make things new that never were. So blow this day, wind, blow here and there, power, blow even before us, force, rush us beyond ourselves, rush us beyond our hopes, rush us beyond our fears, until we enact your newness in the world. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Amen and amen. Thank you for bearing with me in this complex paragraph, and I hope, at least, you can see that God calls us to recognize that life is a gift and love is the point, and each of us have a choice to be a beneficial presence in the world. May you do so this week. God bless you. We'll see you soon.